long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Disaster Queen Podcast. I'm Jenny Rapson, your host, the Disaster Queen, and I'm so happy you're with me today. Apologies in advance, I have a lot of allergies going on, so I'll try to keep my voice just as chipper and lively as usual as we talk about terrible mass casualty events, but I apologize if I sound like I've got a little something going on, because I sure do. Let's just keep it real without annoying you guys. I'll do my best. So today we are going to talk about a really terrible event, like we do. It is the Munich Olympics Massacre of 1972. It happened on September 5th, 1972 in Munich, West Germany at the time. And I chose this one because it happened, well, two reasons, really. One, it happened on my birthday, September 5th. I was not born yet, but that is my birthday. So it's one of those things I've always seen pop up when it's like on this day in history and you're like, oh, that's my birthday. Also, the other reason I chose it is because I absolutely love the Olympics. I would describe myself, to be honest, as an Olympaholic. Um, I love the Olympics. I'm so happy we have them like every two years now instead of every four. And then we would get two during, you know, that year. We would get winter and summer in the same year. But I like it alternating now because that means more Olympics more often for me to enjoy which is weird. I'm not really a sports person, but I love the Olympics. So the Olympics is the only time I'm really into sports. And it's also the time that I am the most patriotic. And I love, love, love the Olympics. So I'm really super heartbroken that the wonderful Olympic Games with the Olympic spirit and the way we come together through sport was marred by a terrible, terrible act of terrorism. And I know you've heard me say this before on this podcast, but I really hate terrorism. So this is an act of man. Um, It is not just an act of terror, but also the whole way the terrorists were negotiated with and dealt with also was a huge disaster. So it's all act of man, though. It's all bad. So well, let's jump into it. We've got a lot of background on this because of the parties involved and because of the location. Munich, West Germany at the time. Germany was not united. East Germany was communist. West Germany was democratic, I guess you could say. Quote, unquote, free, as we called it in the USA. So let's talk about the Munich Olympics. Here's some background. Berlin, Germany had hosted the 1936 Olympics, which were very, shall we say, Hitler forward, um, real racist, anti-Semitic. Uh, Hitler was real mad when Jesse Owens won gold medals because he was black and not Aryan. Stuff like that. So the organizers of the Munich Games were very, very keen to show off a kindler, gentler, less racist 
West Germany and differentiate themselves from the Germany of the past and also from communism and all that was going on in East Germany. So they had definitely an agenda and their model, their model, their motto for the games was actually the cheerful games or the serene games is how it kind of translates into English. I'm not going to try to pronounce the German words, but those mottos became very, very ironic as you will soon see. The other thing the Munich Olympic Committee was trying to counter was the fact that the Mexico City Olympics had been fraught with violence and a heavy police and military presence. And um, the 1936 Berlin Games were also very military forward. So Munich wanted to get away from that. They wanted everything to be peace and cheer and not a bunch of military and police with guns all around the Olympic Village. Uh, The Mexico City, they had had a huge student protest about 10 days or so before the 1968 games and the Mexican police gunned down hundreds of student protesters and the Mexican military was also a constant presence at those games. So Munich really wanted to be completely different from the 1970, I'm sorry, the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. They wanted to have a carefree and cheerful and not militant games. Unfortunately, this agenda resulted in them spending less than $2 million on security, which is nuts when you think, even in 1972, I don't know how much money that equates to now, but it was not a lot for security for thousands and thousands of international athletes back then. Um, The security personnel were not armed. Eek! They were inconspicuous. They were non-confrontational. They were basically just there literally to keep an eye on things. (laughs) Like, uh, it's not great, you guys. And it would obviously have disastrous consequences. So that's kind of the background you need to know on the Munich Olympics and what their goals were, the organizers, and kind of what they were trying to get away from in the past. All right, now I need to give you some background on the terror group involved in this. Whew, it's a lot. Um, And... I really had to research this because the the situation is very nuanced and it's just a, it's big political stuff that if you don't know, you don't know. So let's just dive in. I'll do my best. The terror group involved in this attack in Munich is called Black September. And without giving too many spoilers, Black September attacked a group of Israeli athletes and coaches. Black September is a Palestinian group. So we need to talk about the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis that has gone on literally since biblical times over who really has claim to the land of Palestine slash Israel. On the map, Palestine includes Israel. So when I say Palestine, I'm talking about both. I'm talking about that land that both Palestinians and Israelis lay claim to. Um, Back in around World War II, the British had control of the land of Palestine, and they said who could come in or out. And so when people were immigrating to get away from the Nazis, uh, Jewish European Jews, they were going to Palestine. They had to get permission from the British who were controlling Palestine. Then eventually around 1948, I believe, 
the United Nations or whoever decided that Israel should have their own land. And so they granted it to Israel. Well, obviously, the Palestinians did not like this. And a war ensued. Many wars. After the Arab-Israeli War in 1967, the Israelis controlled the land and had kicked out thousands of Palestinians. So this is only, you know, a few a few years old. Um, in 1972, what we're talking about had taken place just about five years earlier. So many, many Palestinians had spent years displaced and in refugee camps. And these terror, terror groups like Black September were actually made up of a lot of young men who had grown up angry and impoverished in refugee camps. And you can understand if you're kicked out of your homeland as a child and you grow up in this awful refugee camp, you know, rootless, homeless, impoverished, you know, you might have some issues as an adult. Um, in the documentary One Day in September, which I really recommend, I've watched it three times. I had already watched it twice and I watched it again for this episode a member of Black September who was involved in this terror attack in Munich is interviewed and he explains that after his nightmare of a childhood, he couldn't wait to fight the Israelis. I understand that the situation is very nuanced and they both lay claim to the land. So I'm not going to take sides here, but I will say that I don't believe terrorism and murdering people and taking people hostage is ever the answer to any political conflict. You guys know I hate terrorism. Um, but anyway, back to Black September. Black September was an offshoot, a militant offshoot, kind of an unofficial offshoot of the Palestine Liberation Organization. The PLO still exists today. Um, and in this case, they were obviously in the wrong. But back in the 70s, when our disaster took place, the PLO had a stated goal of getting back the entire state of Israel or Palestine for themselves, and their only stated means of getting that land was armed struggle, taking up arms. So basically, acts of terror and guerrilla warfare. Now today, since the Oslo Accords of 1993, the PLO says it only wants Palestinian statehood and for expelled Palestinians to be able to return to their homes in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And Israel has militarily controlled those territories since the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. Now their only stated means of accomplishing this is dis diplomacy. But back then in the 70s, where we are in our disaster today, they were all about the, quote, armed struggle, which again means terrorism and guerrilla warfare. So even then, the PLO was not radical enough for some of these folks. So Black September formed. It was actually um, part of an even more radical group called Fatah. And let me apologize for all the, there's a lot of um, German, Israeli, Arab names in this, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce them correctly. And I'm very sorry for the mistakes that I will inevitably make. But um, Black September was an offshoot of this group called Fatah, and Black September was actually named after the massacre of Palestinian refugees by the Jordanian military in September of 1970. Jordan was not on their side. And I I didn't look into this, but I do think it was probably not great of the Jordanian kingdom to massacre a bunch of Palestinians. Typically, I'm not in favor of that. So that was September of 1970. And so Black September named 
themselves after that event. So, and Black September did take their revenge for that event. Um, ooh, I'm not into revenge either, you guys. So, okay. Anyway, um, basically, Palestine Liberation Organization wasn't terroristy enough for Black September, so they were like, "Let's get another group together to assassinate and kidnap people," and that is what they did. So let's get into what happened on September 5th, 1972 at the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. The games were humming along without incident. They'd been very nice and cheerful for about 10 days um, when terror struck in the athlete's village. If you're an American like me, you might remember that the great swimmer Mark Spitz won seven Olympic gold medals at those games, and he accomplished the last of those on September 4th, just a day before our tragedy takes place. All of those medals, all seven, were also world records, and it was a huge, huge deal. Spitz's record of being the most medaled American swimmer stood until Michael Phelps broke it over 30 years later. And I remember that. I watched that, of course. Oh, my gosh. Olympaholic. I loved all of Phelps's achievements. Incidentally, Spitz is Jewish, and after Black September attacked the Israeli team, he was hustled right out of West Germany and back to the U.S., um, for his own safety. So back to the main event here at 4:30 AM on Tuesday, September 5th, the day after Spitz's triumph, eight black September terrorists scaled a fence that surrounded the Olympic village. They were dressed like athletes and they were carrying duffel bags. So tragically they were actually helped over the fence by fellow athletes from another country who just thought they were out too late and needed help getting back to their rooms after curfew. I feel those guys had to feel so bad when they realized later what had happened. They were just trying to do a good deed. I'm sure Black September would have gotten over the fence anyway, you guys. Um, But anyway, their duffel bags contained huge guns and not athletic equipment. So, yeah. They had done tons of reconnaissance work, with some of them even being hired for jobs at the Olympic Village before the Games. Um, one was reportedly a chef, one was reportedly um, on the engineering slash construction team, and these jobs had allowed them to steal keys to the Israelis' rooms. They also had done enough recon where they knew where the Israeli athletes were staying and even which athletes were in what apartment. So they were really going in with a lot of knowledge, unfortunately. Um, the Israelis' apartments were at 31 Colony Strasse. And I believe they had one apartments one through three. So as the, and the, uh, the women, I will say, were housed somewhere else. So these are just men, male athletes and coaches we'll be talking about that are part of this disaster. As the Black September members attempted to enter apartment one, well, they were um, confronted by two members of the wrestling delegation. Unfortunately for them, Yosef Gutfreund, a wrestling referee who was a really big guy, was awake, and he saw the doorknob rattling. So as soon as they started to open the door, he threw himself against the door and tried to slam it back shut on his attackers, and he yelled and screamed and alerted the other occupants of the apartment. So he allowed that his warnings allowed his roommate to break a window and escape out of a window, which was amazing. Gutfreund's actions definitely saved his roommate's life. The other member was Moshi Weinberg, who was a wrestling coach. And unfortunately, Weinberg was also a big, strong guy, and he started fighting them, and he was immediately shot through the cheek. 
but not killed as he bravely fought his attackers. They then forced him and Gutfreund at gunpoint to lead them into apartment three. There's some discussion as to why the terrorists bypassed apartment two. One theory is that Weinberg led him to apartment three because there were wrestlers and weightlifters in there and he thought they'd have a better chance of fighting them, fighting the terrorists. The other theory is that the terrorists knew because they'd done their research that the Israeli shooting team was in apartment two and they didn't want to do battle with sharpshooters, which seems plausible to me, but who really knows? Apartment three is where they ended up. And there were more wrestlers and weightlifters in there, but they weren't all wrestlers and weightlifters, as we'll see. Um, There were 10 more Israelis in apartment three, in addition to the two that Black September already had, Gutfreund and Weinberg. Um, The terrorists gathered them up and hustled them back to apartment one. But one of the athletes named Gad Sabara broke away from the group and made a run for it. Heck yes, he did. And he got out of there. Um, One of the terrorists followed him through a parking garage and shot at him, but he was able to get away, which is awesome. And I'm so happy for him. Um, Moshe Weinberg took advantage of that situation and the confusion that it caused And he tried to wrestle a gun from a captor, and he actually knocked one of the captors out with a punch, which is amazing. And he almost succeeded, but then he was shot dead by another Black September member just as he was getting control of a gun. And he was the first uh, victim of Black September that day. Then a weightlifter named Yosef Romano tried to disarm another Black, Black, Black September member, I keep saying Black September member. I've got to figure out a better way to say that. Um, but anyway, Yosef Romano tried to disarm. Let's call him BS because this is a bunch of BS. Yosef Romano tried to disarm another BS member and he too was shot dead. So he was the second victim and his body was mutilated and I'm not going to get into it, but they did some bad things to his remains, which is extremely disrespectful and they left it on the apartment floor as a warning to the fellow Israeli hostages. So now we have nine living Israeli athletes and coaches who are hostages and two deceased, Moshe Weinberg and Yosef Romano. All that happened within about the first 10 minutes of the conflict. And then now we enter a time of negotiation. So obviously you have Israeli athletes who have escaped from the other apartments. The people from apartment two all got out, obviously. And everyone ran to alert the authorities. So if they hadn't already heard the gunfire, they soon had witnesses telling them what had happened. Manfred Schreiber, the West German police commissioner, who also happened to be the head of the Olympic security, took charge of the situation. To communicate their demands, the head of the BS group, known by ISA, dropped two pieces of paper onto the street that had their demands on them. Before I talk about their demands, I want to say I'm not going to, I'll refer to Isa just to dis- distinguish him from the rest of the terrorists. I'm not going to say their names or give them any more renown or fame for being murderers. I don't think they deserve recognition and I'm, I'll refer to Isa and that's it. So we're not going to talk about I've already given some background and and explained that there's some nuance to the situation, but we're not going to talk about these people or give them any notoriety um, by name. So not going to do it. All right. So he he dropped two pieces of paper onto the street. The papers outlined their demands, which was crazy. The release of 236 Palestinian prisoners held by Israel and two more Palestinian prisoners held in West Germany. 
This was, you know, around 5 a.m. And BS only gave till 9 a.m. to meet the demands or they said they would start executing a hostage every hour. And this makes me so upset. To prove how serious they were, they threw Moshi Weinberg's body outside over the balcony and onto the street to show they were willing to kill. So disrespectful. It's really sickening. Like, it's inhuman. I, I don't like it. But, I mean, this is terrorists we're dealing with. Um, so, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. All right, so West Germany got on the horn with Israel, and their prime minister, Golda Meir, was like, oh, no, no, we do not negotiate with terrorists, and we are not releasing these prisoners. She basically said that if they gave in to demands, it would just encourage more attacks such as this one to Israelis, no matter where they were in the world. I mean, the Olympics is supposed to be a safe and peaceful place, and this is where the terrorists went. So she definitely has a point. Her exact quote is, if we should give in, then no Israeli anywhere in the world can feel that his life is safe. And I've got to say, if you're Jewish, um, in 1972, especially like um, several of these hostages were Holocaust survivors or the children of Holocaust survivors. So they're already surely growing up with the feeling that they are not safe in this world. And I think probably a lot of Jews all over the world still feel that, and I cannot fault them. And it makes me really upset. Um, so the West Germans began lying to the terrorists and getting them to extend the deadline again and again. So instead of telling them that Golda Meir said, no, we're not going to release those prisoners, they just kept telling them that they just needed more time to secure the release of the prisoners. But really, they were trying to buy time to try and organize a rescue effort. Unfortunately, the West German police were in no way qualified to undertake such a rescue effort or even handle a hostage situation like this. They had no counterterrorism unit. Their officers had no counterterrorism training. Um, they were just woefully unprepared. And Israel offered to help um, by sending some of their special forces who were trained in this type of thing. But West Germany said, no, thanks. We got this which I think is super dumb, but I also don't know how quickly the special forces could have gotten there from Israel. Really not sure. And this all does take place pretty quickly. But um, West Germany turned down the help. And I don't know, it's easy to say in hindsight, but they were not prepared and didn't know how to do this. So that's part of the reason it goes like it does. Um, so I want to pause here just to note and recognize that this was the first international act of terrorism that was witnessed live on television. You guys know if you've watched the Olympics, there's tons of coverage, you know, lots of live coverage. There's reporters everywhere. Um, if you're my age, then you watch the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing live. You watch the actual events of September 11th, 2001 happening live. But in 1972, this was a very new occurrence and it, it really complicated matters to have the event live on TV because it was a hostage situation and because the terrorists had TVs in that apartment. <laughs> From the moment the news broke, journalists were there. And eventually, although the games went on, which we will get back to later, 
TV networks began covering the hostage situation live instead of the games. So viewers could see the hostages with masks on or with their faces blackened with shoe polish, peeking from windows or coming out on the balcony. There's some live TV photographs and still photographs from that that are iconic. That if you see them, um, I'll try to link to some of them in the show notes. You're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. It's iconic. Um, And that was all covered on live TV. So unfortunately... To go along with this, TV broadcasters, journalists, cameras were also broadcasting the movements of the West German police on live TV. There's literally clips you can watch. It's in the Black September doc, but you can see it on YouTube as well. I'm sorry, One Day in September, not Black September. The documentary is called One Day in September. So if you're watching the documentary One Day in September or you're just, you know, YouTubing this, you can hear, you can see reports of the reporter Peter Jennings, who I love. God rest his soul, talking about what the West German police are doing. He's literally narrating their every move. He knows how many there are. He knows what the plans are. And he's just saying it on national TV. And the terrorists, the BS, are watching this on West German TV. So um, this put a real wrench in the rescue attempts. So let's talk about the rescue attempts. Firstly, around 2 or 2.30 p.m. that afternoon, There were some policemen disguised as Olympic Village chefs bringing a bunch of food to the terrorists and the hostages. And the hope was that because they brought way too much food for one man to carry, the terrorists would allow them to carry the food into the apartment. And then the police officers could overpower them or at the very least get a good amount of reconnaissance done on how many terrorists there were because they had no idea how many there were and how well armed they were. They also wanted to visually see the condition of the hostages. But Issa, the BS leader, was like, no, 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 you're not coming in here. And he just had his fellow terrorists take the food from them at the door. And so that didn't work. Um, The next plan the West Germans came up with was for 38 policemen to stage a rescue by going up on the roof of the apartments and entering it through the air shafts. First of all, I have no idea how this would actually work. It sounds very like Mission Impossible or Die Hard, which I guess the situation kind of is. But it doesn't even matter because Issa and the other BS terrorists saw all of the 38 policemen. And Peter Jennings actually says there are 38. I don't know how he knew that. Maybe he counted them. I don't know. Um, But they saw all the 38 policemen dressed as athletes, but with poorly disguised big guns moving into position on live television. You can see in the news footage, there's like, you know, policemen on the roof. And from different positions. And the news cameras keep showing this over and over again. It's bonkers. Um, In the documentary, One Day in September, they show the news announcers like Peter Jennings and Jim McKay, like literally saying out loud what the specific plan is and giving a play-by-play as the officers move into position and showing shots of where they're located. And the terrorists are just watching this and listening to all this like, thanks for the info, guys. Like, I don't understand why the police had allowed the journalists to have the exact specifications of their rescue plan. Like, I'm into free speech and everything, but I feel like they could have asked them to turn the cameras off for this. I I don't know. Anyway, basically, as all the rescue force was moving into place, Issa just came out of the apartment onto the balcony and started yelling like, hey, we know what you're doing. Knock it off or we're going to kill some more of these hostages. So obviously the West Germans had to call that operation off. And after that, that made them mad. The BS were like, we're done negotiating with you. We want to be in an Arab country. You need to get us out of here. 
Um, give us the hostages, give us and our hostages safe passage to an Arab country. We won't kill any more of them um, until we get there. And we'll resume negotiations for their release when we land safely in a place that feels safer to us. That's basically what they said to the West Germans. So the West Germans agreed to fly them to Cairo, Egypt. And about 9.30 that night, buses came to take the hostages to um, and the terrorists to another location where they would fly by helicopter to an airfield, which brings us into the final chapter in this terrible disaster, the botched rescue. You see, because the West Germans weren't really going to let them fly to Cairo, they were going to stage another rescue attempt. Um, they had... Once again, for whatever reason, they still had no idea how many uh, terrorists there were until they led them out to the buses. And then they were like, oh, there's eight. Cool. But they had only stationed five snipers at the airfield and they never like radioed over to the five snipers to tell them there was actually eight terrorists because they thought there were only five. And they never, even though they had time, they never gave them that info. So I don't. Just one more like total mess up in this situation. So. Um, five hostages went in one helicopter with some terrorists, four hostages went in another helicopter with some terrorists, and they flew over to the Furstenfeld Air Base, where they landed, and there was a big old Lufthansa plane waiting for them. Well, the plan was that West German police, disguised as plane crew, were supposed to overpower the terrorists as they boarded, boarded the plane and let snipers take care of the rest of them outside of the plane. However... This didn't work because the police, who were dressed up as the airplane crew, voted before the terrorists got there to abandon the mission, deciding it was too dangerous. So they just like got together on the plane and were like, you know what? We don't want to do this. This is too dangerous. We out. And they got the heck out of there. So those guys kind of suck. I mean, the plan kind of sucked, but that also kind of sucks that they did that. Um... The officials then had to go with plan B, which was use our snipers, which we only have five of, to kill all the terrorists. Unfortunately, none of these snipers were actually sharpshooters. As I've mentioned, the West German police were not prepared for this at all. They had police, you know, they had some guys who were pretty good shots, but they weren't like actual snipers or sharpshooters. So basically, um, Issa and another terrorist got on the plane, saw that there was no one on the plane, immediately knew it was a trap, ran back out, and the West Germans started shooting at them. So then they started shooting back, and there was about an hour-long gun battle that ensued, in which West German police officer Anton Fliegerbauer and several of the terrorists were killed. When it got down to the nitty-gritty and the terrorists realized that they were not going to get out of there alive. This is hard. They um, shot all of the hostages who were bound in helicopters. And then one of them, one of them, one of the helicopters full of hostages were completely killed by gunfire. The other ones were shot and then a grenade was thrown in to blow the helicopter up. And all of the hostages were killed. So that's nine hostages killed at the airfield and two killed at the Olympic Village with a total of 11 Israeli athletes and coaches who lost their lives and one West German police officer who lost his life. 
Issa and four other BS members were killed, but three got away. However, they were soon rounded up and captured by the West German police. So that is how that ended in the wee hours of the morning on September 6th, 1972. So the disaster part, I mean, this rescue, I use the rescue in air quotes, was so badly botched. West German police officer was killed. All of the hostages were killed. There, like, there were grenades used. Like, the whole airfield was exploding. It was definitely a disaster of epic proportions and a complete failure. Which, you know, West Germany, West German police still have not lived down to this day. Um, you know, and I'm not a law enforcement. I don't know exactly what they could have done differently, but, you know, in hindsight, it's 2020, but. You know, it's not a stretch to say that this was a terrible, terrible mishandled disaster. So let's talk about, I want to talk about those who lost their lives and give them the space and the honor um, that they are due. Some of them I was able to find more info on than others, and I'm not really sure why. Also, fun fact, I had to handwrite my notes on this part because I have some tendonitis in my left thumb and I just had to give up typing. So hopefully I can read my own handwriting. All right, here they are in no particular order. First, we'll talk about Josef Gutfreund. We mentioned him because he was the first one to confront the hostages and saved his um, roommate's life with his warning. He was 40 years old. He was born in Romania. Um, So he was born in Europe you know, shortly before Hitler took over. Again, that's something I want to say about these people. Many of them had already experienced terrible tragedy in their life and struggle because of World War II and the Holocaust. Um, Munich was his third Olympics as a wrestling referee, and he left behind a wife and two daughters. He was very passionate about developing his sport and worked hard in Israel to develop and mentor wrestlers for future generations. Next is Kihat Shore. He was 53 years old and he was a shooting coach. He was also born in Romania and he lost his wife and daughter in the Holocaust. I I hate this, guys. So he already lost his wife and daughter in the Holocaust. So he was already experienced a great tragedy due to anti-Semitism and racism. And then he eventually lost his life in Germany because he was a Jew. He was an expert marksman. He immigrated to Israel in 1963 and he trained many Israeli marksmen, including the National Olympic team that he was coach of. He also left behind a wife and a daughter when he died. So he did remarry eventually and have another child. Next is Emitzer Shapira. He was 40 years old. He was born in Palestine. So he was, you know, not one of those who was in Europe, but always lived in a territory that was dangerous for him to be in because of his race. Um, He was a PE teacher and a coach, and he was married with four children. He was the head coach of Israeli track and field. And in his youth, he was an excellent sprinter and long jumper. So a lot of these I want to just, again, mention a lot of these were athletes, but many also coaches and judges, not just um, young athletes. Next is Andre Spitzer. He was only 27 years old, and he was a fencing master. 
and the Israeli fencing coach. He's one of the ones that we know more about. I can find more information about. He's heavily mentioned in the One Day in September documentary, and his wife is heavily interviewed in that documentary. Andre was born in Romania to parents who were Holocaust survivors, and he immigrated to Israel at age 11 and served in the Air Force. He moved to the Netherlands in 1968 for further fencing training, and there he met his wife, who was one of his students. Her name was Anki, and they were married in 1971. They were only married for 15 months before he was killed, Um, and he left behind not only his wife, Anki, but his two-month-old daughter, Anouk. And an anecdote about the Spitzers is that um, Anki went with Andre to the Olympics, and after his events were over, they returned to the Netherlands for a couple of days to see their daughter, Anouk, who had been hospitalized. Um, I think she just missed her mom and dad real bad because she was hospitalized for excessive crying. And they Um, Spent some time with her and the doctors were like, she's going to be fine. You can go back. And so Andre returned to Munich and he only arrived in Munich about four hours before the assault. It's a close call. Anki Spitzer, who was Dutch. This is remarkable. After her husband was killed, she relocated permanently to Israel to raise her daughter there so that she could help better understand and know her father. Even though Anki didn't speak the language and had no family there, she moved there, she converted to Judaism, and she raised her daughter there in her father's homeland. And she was a big advocate for the victims' families with the German government. And if you watch the documentary One Day in September, you'll see a lot from her. A remarkable woman who was married to a remarkable man. Okay, next is Yaakov Springer. He was 51 years old. He was the rest, a wrestler, a former wrestler, and the weightlifting coach of the Israeli national team, and also a judge. Um, he was a Holocaust survivor himself. I hate it. Oh, I just hate that these people survived Hitler and then got killed by Palestinian terrorists in Germany. Like, I hate it so much. Um, he took, he was a total BA because he took part in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which if you know anything about that, was a major rebellion by imprisoned Jews in Warsaw, Poland. They really put some hurt on the Nazis. Um, He immigrated to Israel in 1956, and he was also a PE PE teacher and trained many youths and coaches in his career. He left behind a wife, a son, and a daughter. Next is Eliezer Halfen. He was only 24 years old. Oh, I hate it. He was born in Latvia, and he was an Israeli team wrestler. He was a mechanic by profession, and he came to Israel in 1969 to join their athletic teams. Um, He was survived by his parents and his sister, and participating in the Olympics was the highlight of his career and his dream. So one thing about being Jewish is if, if you're born somewhere else and you're Jewish, you can emigrate to Israel. And they're like, yes, join us. You're our brother. You're our sister. And join their teams. And that's what Eliezer Halfin did. Next is the youngest victim, Mark Slavin. He was only 18 years old. And that makes me insane. I have a son who's 19. So oof, his parents, I just feel for them. Um, he was born in Belarus and he was a Greco-Roman wrestler. He took up wrestling um, very young as a youth as a way to defend himself against anti-Semitic attacks. Yeah. 
He moved to Israel just four months before the games to train and join the to train with and join the Israeli na- national team. And he was supposed to make his Olympic debut that day, September 5th, 1972. And obviously the terrorists took that dream away from him as well as his life. Next is David Mark Berger, who was 28. He was a weightlifter, and he's one of those who I spoke about who immigrated to Israel to join the Israeli team. He was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, which I'm from Ohio, so found this very interesting. Um, I did know this before, but I learned a lot more about him, obviously. He was a lawyer by education, and he immigrated to Israel. Um, after taking part in the 1969 Maccabea Games, where he won a gold medal, he had dual citizenship in the U.S. and Israel. Um, he finished fourth in the 1968 Olympic trials in the U.S., and he knew he had a better chance of going to the Olympics if he competed for Israel. So that's why he moved on over. And he intended to open a law office in Tel Aviv after completing his required Israeli military service. He is the only one of the victims not buried in Israel. He's buried in Cleveland so that his family could be close to him. And his remains were ordered personally by President Nixon to be returned on an Air Force jet. And he was survived by his parents who lived in Cleveland. And next we have Zev Friedman, who was also 28 years old, also an Israeli weightlifter. And he was born in the USSR, the Soviet Union and immigrated to Israel in 1960. He placed 12th in the Olympics, which was one of the best achievements of any Israeli athlete at that time. Who knows what he could have gone on to do in the future? A tragic loss. Here we have um, Moshe Weinberg that we talked about earlier. He was the first one killed by the terrorists. He was only 32 years old. He also was born in Israel. He was only two weeks away from his 33rd birthday. And he was an Israeli wrestler who was the coach of the national team. And he was also an Israeli youth wrestling champion. So very accomplished. He was the adult middleweight wrestling champion for eight years. So very devoted to his craft. And he left behind a wife and his son. Interestingly, his wife, I'm sorry, his son is an actor. His name is Guri Weinberg. And he played his father in the Steven Spielberg movie about this which I'm going to talk about in a minute, which is called Munich. Guri Weinberg played his father, Moshi, and I cannot imagine how hard that must have been for him. Because if you've seen the movie, and I watched it specifically for research for this, just because so much of the research actually mentioned the movie, um, it's hard. Like, it's hard to watch in the scene specifically with Guri playing his father when he's killed. I don't know how Gurry did it. I don't. It's hard. So kudos to him. I think he was also in some of the Twilight movies, but I've never seen those. But you guys should look him up. And he definitely looks like his dad. And he's his father's legacy. So. Well, Moshi Weinberg's bravery and heroism is his legacy. But I'm glad that he has, you know, descendants continuing on um, in this world. Okay, next we have Yosef Romano, who was the second Israeli killed by the terrorists. He was 32 years old also. He was born in Benghazi, Libya, which is interesting. He was an Israeli weightlifter, and he was the weightlifting champion in the light and middleweight classes for nine years. That's a long time to be on top. 
He immigrated for what to what was then Palestine in 1946. Um, he was an interior decorator by trade, which I think is so interesting for like a weightlifter. It's not normally what you'd think of. And he was survived by his wife, Ilana, and three daughters. He also fought in the 1967 Six-Day War. And his wife, Ilana, like Anki Spitzer, was a huge advocate for the athletes' families, which we'll talk about in a bit. Finally, we have the West German policeman Anton Fliegerbauer. He was also 32 years old. These last three guys were also all 32. Very interesting. He was born in Lower Bavaria, and he joined the Munich police in 1964. He married his wife Maria in 1966, and they had a son in 1968. September 5th, 1972 was supposed to be the first day of his vacation, but he was called in to help with the terrible terror situation. He was an excellent marksman, but he wasn't necessarily a sniper and, of course, had not received any counterterrorism training. And so he lost his life there heroically on the airfield, trying to help rescue the hostages. His wife was pregnant at the time of his death, but she lost the baby. So that's, my opinion, probably another victim for Black September. Maybe there are 13 dead instead of 12. So that is all the victims. I hope you'll take some time to think about them, look up even more details about them. Like I said, it was hard to find a lot about some of them, but you can see their pictures online easily. I'll link to some sources in the show notes. Watch one day in September and just learn and think about them. There's two things I want to touch on that I didn't <clears throat> really know where to fit them in. So before I close here, I want to add that the Olympic Games didn't stop right away when this happened. They continued on for about six hours, and there was a lot of criticism about that. Eventually, the head of the games, Avery Brundage, under pressure, did halt them. And then they were halted for like 34 hours. And then the next morning, they held a memorial service for the athletes. And then they went on with the games. Which, I mean, I, you could cancel the games. I think you could go either way it would be I think either way is an okay decision. I doubt that the Israeli athletes would want wanted everything to just be canceled. Um, I don't know that for sure, but I certainly think that the halting them was the correct thing to do and taking some time off. And I'm super irritated that it took six hours for them to halt the games. I just think it's wild that like people were, st were still running races and stuff like that while People were being held hostage in the literal Athletes Olympic Village. I think that's crazy. So that's one thing I wanted to just touch on. The other thing I wanted to touch on is there wasn't any official like apology from West Germany or recognition of the situation by the Olympics for like decades. And that's when I say Anki Spitzer and Ilana Romano were big advocates for the athletes' families. It took them years and years and years, I believe until 2016 Olympics, to get any official recognition and like a memorial and like things spoken at the Olympics about the attack and a remembrance. And then eventually the West German government finally admitted like, yeah, we screwed this up. And I think there was a financial settlement involved for the victims' families, but it took, it took literal decades. And that's just wild to me, like that the Olympics for so many years were just like not mentioning it. I mean, the news broadcasters would mention it, you know, do, you know, memorial 
news packages and stuff on it. I saw that several times over the years, but there was never any official recognition for like 40 years. <laughs> I do not understand. Um, so that's another reason to just like get this out here and do this episode because people need to remember this so that it doesn't happen again. And the huge legacy of the Munich Olympics, though, is even though there was no like official recognition by the Olympics for so many years, the legacy is they all spend ginormous amounts of their budget on security now. And that was an immediate change that came immediately with the next Olympics. Huge amounts of money on security. And it's just a lot safer for athletes from all nations now to be living in the Olympic Village and be part of the Games. So that's that's the legacy of Munich. Um, I hate that it had to happen. I hate that the security was so lax in the first place. And I hate that people hate each other and want to kill each other for their own causes. <clears throat> I hate that people think they can solve problems with terrorism. But honestly, the Palestinians at large considered Munich a great success because it brought so much attention to their cause. I don't know what to do with that, but it's the truth. I don't like it, but it's the truth. So I guess we'll wrap up there. September 5th, 1972, the Munich massacre of 11 Israeli athletes and coaches by a Palestinian terror group called Black September in one German police officer forever changed our world in the Olympics. And I kind of agree with gold in my ear. I don't know how any Israelis or Jews in general can feel safe anywhere in the world. And I hope that that is, I sincerely hope that that is changed now, but I'm not sure. All right. That's it for me. Sorry to leave you on such a sunshiny note, but this was a hard one. This was a really emotional one. So I'm interested in knowing what you learned. Did you know anything about this before? I'd love if you could comment on my Instagram posts about this or shoot me an Instagram message at DisasterQueenPod. Um, yeah, just reach out and let me know what you think. And while you're at it, please rate and review the podcast so that others can find us and we can have some more joining our Disaster Pod squad. I appreciate you guys so much. I love doing this for you. I hope you guys have a great two weeks until we meet again and stay safe and don't be a disaster. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And DisasterQueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at DisasterQueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at DisasterQueenPod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at DisasterQueenPod on Instagram and at DisasterQPod on Twitter.